Welcome to Pints and Pelvic Floors, a podcast designed to normalize the discussion around all things pee, poop, sex, and more. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Noble, owner of Pelvic Pride Physical Therapy and Wellness, an LGBTQ-owned transgender safe space and clinic for all. Grab a pint and come as you are as we uncover the myths around our genitals and destigmatize normal body functions, as well as normalize asking for help. So raise your glass because it's a beautiful day to see pelvic floors. Hi friends, welcome back to Pints and Pelvic Floors. This is episode three, and today we're going to talk about what training goes into becoming a pelvic floor therapist. I hope you've been enjoying the first two episodes and glad you came back for another one. If you're just finding us, welcome. Go back, listen to the first two, get a little introduction and an understanding of what the pelvic floor is, and then buckle in for some information on how we become pelvic floor therapists. So to start, let's just go through the background of um, kind of what the degrees are that you can get for this. So most commonly we think of this and the way it's kind of talked about in the world is a pelvic floor physical therapist. So let's throw it out there real fast that there are also pelvic floor occupational therapists. So you do not have to be a PT to be a pelvic floor therapist, but in general, pelvic floor therapists should have one of those two rehab or um, therapy degrees, either a physical therapist or an occupational therapist. The degree field has changed a lot over the last 20 years or so. Originally, it started off in a lower level field where you would get things like an associate's or a bachelor's degree. Then it progressed into a master's degree. And by the time I was going to PT school, most of the degrees degree um, had switched over to a DPT or a doctor of physical therapy. And then they added the OTD, the occupational therapy doctorate. So many therapists coming out. I mean, when I was in school, it was hard pressed to find programs that only were doing a master's in physical therapy. Uh, The OT degree was still a master's level, but they were starting the doctorate programs at that time. So most providers that are coming out, all providers coming out of school now are going to have um, a doctorate in physical therapy, a mix of whether they have a doctorate or a master's in occupational therapy, but that doesn't really mean a whole lot because there are tons of providers out there that have years of experience that may have graduated with a bachelor's or a master's in either physical or occupational therapy. I say that because I think it's important to recognize that providers that don't go by Dr. Such and Such, like we do at our clinic, it's Dr. Joy and Dr. Marlena. Does not mean they're not amazing providers. Doesn't mean they probably don't know loads more than I do just because they've been in the field much longer than I have. And that is, I think, a super important caveat to throw out there that a provider's experience and knowledge um, is not always reflected in the degree they received, the degree level they received, because they've been practicing uh, longer than maybe the doctorate has been around in our field. So That was my quick caveat for all my colleagues that are amazing and just don't happen to have the doctorate tagged onto their name. Um, They also don't have the doctorate student loans tagged onto their bills, hopefully. So Um, so that's kind of the start to become a pelvic floor therapist. You do need some kind of like a a rehabilitation therapy degree. And then you go and you get your continuing ed training. So... I get this answer or this question a lot and I answer it with what I'm the story I'm about to tell you. Uh, a lot of my patients come in and they look at me many after the evaluation, some before we even get started. And they say, why did you go into this? Like what made you want to be a pelvic floor therapist? 
And so I tell the story that when I was in PT school, we had a very short lecture and one of my provider or one of my professors told a story where they close the door and the patient starts crying because he'd had pain-free sex for the first time in years or whatever it was. And I was like, huh, that's pretty cool. Like I could totally do that. Um, that has comboed with the desire just as a human who's changed a lot in the last 15 years, um, wanting to provide a safe space where if you sat down in front of a medical provider and you said, dealing a lot with constipation or it really hurts when I have sex or I pee when I sneeze. Uh, I want to be that provider who doesn't look at you funny. There's no shame wrapped around it that I'm not looking at you. Like, I can't believe you're sharing this with me. I want to be able to provide a safe space and be that provider that says, tell me more. Let's talk about that. Can we dive a little deeper? Do you mind sharing some details with me? So it's been super important part of my practice here at Pelvic Pride to ensure that our patients feel like they can talk about anything, that there's no such thing as TMI, that I'll respect my own boundaries as a person and a provider, but that within this room, you know, it is a safe space and we can discuss anything they need to. So that's kind of how I got into it. I wanted to be that person, but the lectures when I was in school were minimal. We kind of brushed over it, just got enough to realize that, hey, this is a thing that people do sometimes leak or have pain and that there is people out there that do help it in the pelvic or in the uh, physical therapy world. So when I was applying for jobs, I had an interview in a private clinic in Gainesville, Florida, that was for a job position that was 50% orthopedic patients and 50% pelvic health patients. And to be 100% transparent, I really struggled with making my decision. The job was seemed awesome at the interview, but I was like, do I want to niche down this fast? Like, do I want to pigeonhole myself into pelvic therapy as soon as I graduate school? Well, spoiler alert, I did. Um, and don't regret it for a second. It was incredible. I learned so much, um, continued to learn so much every single year that I practice. But I took that job and they immediately sent me for training. So I went and took my first two courses at the Institute, uh, Brooks Institute of Higher Learning in Jacksonville, Florida, and then did a lot of mentorship with my very first mentor and kind of grew my knowledge, my practice from then on out with continuing education. So that brings us to what kind of training goes into this. So on top of our degree, right? So we have a degree, a higher level degree in therapy. We also have to pass our boards. So we are board certified providers to be able to practice occupational and physical therapy. But to become a pelvic floor therapist, you have to take continuing education classes outside of therapy school. There are a few different areas or places you can take them. Some of the big names out there are things like Herman and Wallace or the um, American Physical Therapy Association, American Physical Therapy Association Academy for Pelvic Health. Uh, there are others though, Brooks Institute of Higher Learning. And then there's a lot of smaller one-off um, companies or groups or individual pr- practitioners who are creating continuing education. I have taken a lot of the um, Pelvic PT Rising courses with Jesse and Nicole Cozine, Nicole Cozine being the instructor there. Um, they are my business mentors. And so they are people that I have looked up to as far as just learning more, gaining more information on the pelvic floor. And so 
I've taken those courses. I have also gotten my um, pregnancy corrective or postpartum corrective exercise specialist with the added pregnancy component with Sarah Duvall. So again, another individual who is putting out amazing courses on pelvic floor related things. So P, uh, the CEQ courses can look like a lot of different places. They can be under big corporations, like said Herman Wallace or the APTA, or they can be su- smaller subsets. Um, but in general, it means that we're dedicated, dedicating our time in our weekends to going to courses. Pre-pandemic, it was in person. It was all very hands-on. During pandemic, it was all very virtual via Zoom. Um, and now we're kind of in a mixture of both, which has honestly been kind of cool. The pros to this post-COVID continuing ed model is the cost and the barrier to entry is so much lower. When I went, when I was in Gainesville, it wasn't as bad, but I mean, I still had to take the weekend, drive to Jacksonville, which is eh, memory sliding, maybe an hour, two hours drive, depending on traffic. And I had to spend the night for the weekend in Jacksonville take the courses. Sometimes they were two days. Other times they were three day courses. So you're missing work, missing a weekend for the the time that you're in course and you're paying for a hotel, you're paying for all your meals and you're going to class. So that wasn't so bad, just living a few hours away, but sometimes you had to fly across the country. I've taken one in Houston, Texas, and I had to book a flight to go across the country. I had to Fortunately, I stayed with my best friend and didn't have to get a hotel, but I would have had to rent, rent a hotel for the weekend. Again, miss my weekend of a couple of days off for some refresh to learn. And now with that decreased barrier, you're no longer having to travel to another place. You're no longer having to pay the added expenses. You're only paying for the course. So that is definitely a pro. Some of the cons I think is that you aren't getting the same hands on as they had previously. Fortunately, that was pivoted again and now we're doing these satellite courses. So Dr. Marlene and I are actually going in September to a course in Pennsylvania, where we'll be going to see one of our colleagues at Vivid Women's Health, um, going to hang out with Jen and her crew to do a visceral course. So there is still that in-person hands-on component. Fortunately, after COVID, we were all we were able to kind of make the best of both worlds. So we'll do the didactic stuff here, and then we'll go do the hands-on stuff there. With that being said, when I say we're in person, so when you go do these courses, we are both the patient and the practitioner. So my very first course, I had a lovely partner and we sat down and we were on the external anatomy review. It was things like identify the mons pubis, the labia majora, labia minora. She was very sweet. I'm laying down. I have my bottom half exposed in this room full of other providers <laughs> And she says, okay, which one's the mons pubis again? I was like, oh gracious, this is going to be a long weekend. Um, Honestly, we do that because we get all of our quirks and our nervousness and everything out in class. And so by the time we come back to treat our patients, we're super confident. We feel ready to go. But we as providers do that. So we are the patient laying there, letting another person examine and figure out what in the world do we do to treat the pelvic floor. And then we're in reverse. We become the practitioner, they become our patient, and we are practicing the same skill set. 
Um, I share that story a lot with my patients because I want them to realize that they're not alone in feeling um, nervous or maybe a little apprehensive. Uh, it's interesting to walk in and walk up to a stranger, tell your entire story about why you're here and then have to potentially disrobe. Side note, we do have that very explicitly explained in our intake paperwork. Patients have the ability to consent or not consent to that part of the treatment or defer it for another day. So everything is super, super um, consensual. There is a lot of informed consent and enthusiastic informed consent here at Pelvic Pride. But in the general, especially these courses, we know going into it that we have to be both um, a participant in the lab and, and allow our body to be utilized during the lab. So we are aware when we head in that that's happening. But I just, I try to give my patients some peace of mind to know that we've been there, we've done it. I totally understand. And so I'm coming at this from a place of appreciation for their openness to the treatment session today um, and just respect for the feelings they may be sharing because I have shared very similar feelings myself being the first time with a new stranger saying, here's my pelvic floor, please assess. With that, we're going to jump to another thing. So there are a lot of amazing providers out there who treat around the pelvic floor, but, um, something that's super important for us here at pelvic pride is that we find, or we feel that internal pelvic floor work, hands-on internal pelvic floor work is super, super important. Every patient gets to make their own decision. If we have a patient who refuses it, we're not going to turn them away. We're going to work with them. We're going to educate. We're going to explain, and we're going to make sure that they have as much knowledge as they possibly, um, can hold on to and are looking for. But if the patient is on board, once we've just explained what we're trying to do, why we want to do it, how it can be beneficial and what information we can gain. And we have that enthusiastic consent. We find that that hands-on internal is just invaluable. That is such a big part of what we do. And then we support it with other things that the patients can do when they're not in the clinic. Sometimes that means using dilators or wands and that'll be happening or we'll be discussing that a little bit in a future episode, but sometimes it's that. So they're still getting internal work at home. Um, but one of the big things is we don't want to do a disservice to our patients and not assess their muscles internally, um, not treat their muscles internally and only focus on the outside because I think so often we miss such a valuable part of treatment. Recently, I had a patient come in and they had this hip pain, some numbness and tingling in the leg, all sorts of stuff. And I think honestly, they have a few things going on based on the assessment we did, but we did an internal pelvic exam. And as soon as I hit their obturator internus, so a deep inside hip rotating, but also pelvic floor muscle, as soon as I touched it, they're like, that's it. That, that immediately is, that's my hip pain like that. They kept kind of grabbing their hip, grabbing their glute when they were telling me where their pain was. But as soon as I did the internal assessment, then they're like, that's my spot. They had seen an orthopedic provider. They had gotten some relief, but they felt like something was missing. So like, I just wanted to see, is there anything else? I knew this was a different area that I hadn't gotten into. And like, I cannot believe that you just touched my pain. So that is one of the, you know, just one of the numerous examples of something like that, where we reproduce symptoms, we assess the the pelvic floor inside, and we find reproduction of the thing they're coming in to see us for. So I just think it's such an important part. Um, That being said, I've worked with a lot of amazing therapists who don't do internal work, 
they recognize their limit and we cross refer. I am not here to take anyone from a provider. If I have a patient who loves their ortho PT that's helping with their like low back, hip and running mechanics, amazing. How can I assess the pelvic floor? How can I add to their current plan with that provider? I'll do the pelvic floor piece. Me and that PT or OT, we can coordinate on that other provider. We can coordinate on what the care plan is. And we just make sure that what we're doing to treat is helping um, to build the patient up and we're not kind of counteracting each other. And that's it. So it doesn't mean that those providers not doing internal work aren't valuable parts of the, the care team. It just means that, you know, it's important for me to have providers that recognize, hey, I don't do internal, but I think you could benefit. Let me get you to a provider who can. I also think though, if you're marketing yourself as a pelvic floor therapist or doing pelvic floor therapy in a clinic, that doing internal work is super important. Some internal work that we don't love here at my clinic is we don't like to hook people up to machines. We're not going to hook you up to an e-stim machine or a a biofeedback unit and just let you lay by yourself and do some stuff. We have absolutely worked with patients with TENS units that want them for home. And so we'll have them bring them in. We'll show them how to use them, how they can be beneficial and what they can do. And that way they have another technique for home to help continue progress forward. There's a lot of good research out there about using uh, TENS for the transtibial nerve stimulation. Amazing. We educate our patients, we give them the resources, and then we follow up. As far as biofeedback, it's not something we utilize in the, um, the, the most like medical sense of the term. Biofeedback is a concept we utilize all the time. The idea of learning what our pelvic floor muscles are doing, how our body is responding, things like that. But we're not going to hook you up to machine and make the rows grow and the rows shrink or the dolphins swim out of the water and in the water. Um, if you've been there, you understand what I'm talking about. Um, it's just not a model that works in our practice. It's not something we necessarily find value in. There are practices out there that do, which is amazing. And we totally support them, but each practice gets to kind of decide what works and what doesn't work for them. And that's kind of how pelvic pride does things. So, um, making sure that the provider is giving as much value as they can and sharing their knowledge and their expertise is our big goal at pelvic pride. So as we're looking at kind of what we're learning in these continuing education courses to become a pelvic provider, that is some of the stuff we get to start teasing out and putting into our care. So we go to those con ed classes. We learn all sorts of stuff and they, the courses are endless. There are so many areas you can subspecialize in. You can dive deep into working with pregnancy and postpartum individuals. You can really go down the path of working with, uh, adolescent athletes or runners, or you can work with just, um, penis owning male identifying patients. You can also work with transgender patients. That's what we do here at pelvic pride. It's one of my personal specialties. I really enjoy working with this population. They are super, super underserved. There are not enough providers out there. And unfortunately there's not enough clinics that can provide a safe space from start to finish. It's important here. We have things like a, um, all genders bathroom. We make sure that we are respectful of every patient's um, pronoun and identity. We're not going to misgender. We're not going to use wrong pronouns. We're going to do our absolute best to, to value and honor who they are while they're in our space and when they're not in our space. Um, but that's super important. So I have gone through that training. I have developed a practice around it and I work a lot with individuals who are undergoing gender affirming surgery. So we do a pre-surgical consultation prior to, to ensure everything 
in their pelvic region is working as optimally as possible. They have a good knowledge and understanding of what to expect after surgery is over and just kind of set them up for the best recovery possible. So lots of different places you can subspecialize once you get into the realm of pelvic health. Um, but in general, that's some of the big ones we've just covered and yeah, it's just, it's a really, really cool subspecialty under the pelvic or under the PT and OT umbrellas. Some of my, uh, struggles or things that I'm just not super fan of, especially when it comes to, uh, the conversation we just had is things like our, um, the American physical therapy association has changed from the section on women's health to the Academy of pelvic health, which is amazing. However, the special board certification is still a women's, what is it? Women's certified specialist or women's health certified specialist, WCS. And I don't feel like that's the best terminology. Hopefully there's movement to change that. I haven't seen anything. I also haven't dug super deep in there. Um, once it becomes a public health specialist, I'm happy to sit for that examination and hold those credentials, but I just don't feel like it's appropriate as a provider for all individuals to then just say, well, I'm a you know, board certified specialist in this one subspecialty, recognizing that the questions cover all different aspects and you have to know about all of it, but it's just, it's such a specialized gendered terminology that I'm not a fan of. And I would love to see that change to the public health specialist, um, to kind of actually cover who it is that we help. We help those with pelvic floors to build on that too. I think it's super important for providers to be able to recognize when they don't want to work with patients, certain patients. Um, there's a lot of reasons why a provider may not work with certain types of patients in my career. I have had times when I didn't work with penis owning male identifying patients, uh, to the start, it was just a lack of knowledge. I didn't feel like it was fair to have a patient come down, come sit in my clinic and say, having painful ejaculation. And I look at them and go, cool. I'm happy to talk about it. Haven't a clue how to treat you though. So I didn't treat them when I wasn't, didn't have the knowledge, didn't have the expertise yet to treat that. I didn't, I just, I only treat vulva owning women, um, because I cannot help penises at this time. As my knowledge increased, I was able to add that to my services, but I don't feel like it's fair to require everyone to do that. So if a provider decides for themselves, it's a population they're not comfortable treating any population. I think that is fair and it doesn't necessarily speak negatively towards them as a provider. I think they can still be amazing. They just are recognizing what am I comfortable with? Where am I specializing? Who do I want to help? So as much as we want inclusivity, I also want patients to recognize or providers to recognize what their limits are as providers and only offer the care that they feel super confident giving. So if you're not in my area, if you're looking for another provider and you just happen to come across someone, you're like, Hey, they talked about this inclusivity and this treating all these people, but this provider only treats women identifying, female identifying vagina owning individuals. Um, is that a bad thing? No, not at all. I, I don't think so. I think just our ethos here at Public Pride is to treat everyone. Um, but that's what we train for. And that's what we have kind of developed a practice around. So everyone is valid. It's just kind of picking and choosing what works best for you and your care. Another big question I get is, can I just see my normal PT? So we've kind of covered a lot of information in here about what it takes to become a pelvic floor uh, therapist. So can you see your normal PT? Sure. 
but you can start to see some of the information that your normal PT might lack. One, if it's a pelvic floor issue and they aren't able to do that internal assessment, they might be missing something. Um, your, your normal, your orthopedic PT can treat the hip. They can treat the spine. They can treat some pelvic alignment. Uh, they can do some external hands-on stuff, maybe get a little bit into those tailbone muscles and things, but they won't be able to actually get a full picture of what's happening for your pelvic floor. If you bounce back to the last episode where we talk about, um, what's going on with the muscles, what the pelvic floor itself is, all the different functions it has. They're super important. So if you're having issues there, you're seeing an orthopedic PT, they're not going to have necessarily the expertise to treat all those different things. So I think it's really, really important to, um, have that well-rounded approach and have all that information and knowledge. So if you are having issues with maybe a hip, a low back, the pelvic floor, painful pelvic exams, and some leakage when I run, I think it's valuable to see both your orthopedic PT, but also add a pelvic health specialist onto your team. So if you haven't listened to that episode, I will link it in the show notes. So we'll go back and listen to the previous episode to find out kind of more about the pelvic floor itself. But so I think those are the big questions when it comes to just kind of how did I become a pelvic floor therapist? What does it take to become a pelvic floor therapist? Um, to recap, first, we have to get some kind of a degree, whether it's a physical therapy or occupational therapy degree. We sit for our board exam and we become licensed to practice as a practitioner. Then we go on and take those continuing education classes. So we're just learning, you know, more information, specializing, getting a lot of just like niche stuff where we can go into oncology and treat um, patients who have cancers. We can go in and treat a lot of the pregnancy postpartum, the runners, the um, our transgender friends, anything. You can go subspecialize. Um, but it's just a lot of outside of the clinic, outside of our schooling training. So when you're looking for a pelvic therapist, those are some of the things to vet, you know, what kind of a degree did they get? How long have they been working with these patients? What populations do they like to work with? Are they the best fit for me? Do they see my people with my symptoms or my issues frequently? And, and just kind of getting a feel for, is this going to be a good vibe? Did they feel like they're a good fit for the styles of work that I like, the things that I want to do. Um, and if you have questions, you know, we are friendly people, we love helping. So we want to get on the phone or email or whatever is the best way to communicate and chat and just see, are we the best fit for you? And if we're not, can we get you referred over to a provider who is? So that is all the things that go into becoming a pelvic floor therapist. I hope this was, um, opening for some of you. It is a area of expertise that I absolutely love having. I'm super glad I took that very first job almost 10 years ago. Yep. Almost 10 years ago now. And, um, have just kind of been growing ever since. Uh, it's got me to where I am here in Baltimore. It's got me to this awesome clinic that I am super proud to be an owner, uh, or be the owner of, uh, and growing an awesome team. So hopefully you learned something new, go back and listen to the last episode if you haven't already, and we will chat soon. I'm not sure what next episode is going to bring. So we'll just kind of play with some different ideas. If you'll have any suggestions, anything you're curious about or want to learn more, definitely send me a message, maybe DM me on Instagram at pelvic pride. You can send me an email and we will talk soon. Cheers. Hey everyone, just a quick reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not constitute providing medical advice or professional services. Please reach out to your primary care provider if you need any assistance.